to the ENC community worshiping today. Uh, thank you for helping us cultivate that reflective atmosphere that I think is a part of the Advent season. And uh, even a sense of soberness about uh, awaiting for the good news and a sense of reflection about where we are and what kind of people we are. And uh, I think that's important in the Advent season. And as uh, Dr. Smith has mentioned, we have to collapse a few things. Uh, we can't walk together through that rhythm of the Advent season. Uh, and yet we can still capture some of the flavor and some of the feel of that. If I could use those kind of emotive words. Um, uh, but let me say thanks. These beautiful and gifted musicians and singers for me, have portrayed one of the most enticing and luscious visions of human life. As a philosopher, I've read many worldviews and many portrayals of what life could be and even should be. Ah, but the Christian story still captures my heart and soul. And I'm hoping in my feeble way, and I will be feeble today because I'm human like you, and just a broken vessel, uh, sharing and caring, carrying, I think, the most powerful message in the world. So forgive me if I stumble a little bit today. Um, but I would ask for your attention. I, I do think the message of the gospel, particularly that one in Luke 1, the, the messianic song of Zechariah carries so much meaning and power for us. And I'd like to play with that a little bit today. Um, but thank you, the rich pathos and the depth of feeling and emotion. Uh, my own heart was deeply moved, and it made me yearn even more for God's comfort and God's peace. And when we hear those words, peace and comfort, to our ears, those words sound so wonderful, don't they? Who doesn't want peace? Who doesn't want comfort? It appears to be just the human condition under the conditions of the fall. And I'm grateful today for a community of faith that is able to articulate that in beautiful ways, but to call us, to lure us even, to entice us to hear that message again. So here's the, the question for our Advent homily reflection. Just checking time here. And it might seem a strange kind of question at first. It goes like this. What kind of people must we become to enjoy God's promise of peace and comfort? What kind of people must we become to enjoy God's promise of peace and comfort? Let me ask you this. Are you the kind of person who could participate in God's gift of peace? Is ENC the kind of community, the kind of place in which peace and comfort could thrive? Do you and I cultivate the kinds of relationships where God's peace and comfort get expressed? It's these kinds of questions 
I'd like to tease out a little bit in our homily reflection. And yet I realize that to the ears of an evangelical, a particular strand of Christian faith that I'm a part of, that we're a part of at ENC, my family, my tribe, if you will, that might seem a bit strange today. Here's a professor of religion, theologian, a philosopher asking what kind of people we ought to become to be able to receive God's peace and to live it out? That's a strange question to our ears. What do you mean what kind of person I must become to receive something from God? It doesn't quite seem to make sense. And yet I want to suggest for these few moments today that it makes all the sense in the kingdom. In fact, few other questions take priority. Now, I'm going to have to admit a bit of trepidation today, a little bit of angst in speaking to you about peace, joy, and comfort. You see, I've come to believe that the challenge in the church or to the church in America today is not the new paganism that invades our culture. It's not even secularization or this radical rationalization of life this bureaucracy that, uh, that promises to place us in a box and control us, to limit human freedom. It's not even the ignorance and willfulness that's not only a part of our world, but a part of our campus. <laughs> Stanley Harwas, a contemporary ethicist and theologian, suggests that the problem facing the church today is none of these. The problem is sentimentality. He says, sentimentality will kill a people. You see, sentimentality is excessive tenderness or sadness or nostalgia. Ultimately, sentimentality is an end in itself. If I just feel strong enough, ah, that will please God. If I can just work up the emotions and show God how much I feel about him. Surely that will please God. And that's sufficient. But the problem with sentimentality is this divorce or separation of feeling from action. It's a loss of motivation, a loss of a sense of responsibility for our lives. It's that issue that I want to address a little bit today as we tease out the question in our homily. And I think it can be certainly said that in the evangelical church in America that it is very sentimental about Jesus. And that's the problem. Ah, the cadence and the rhythm of that introductory flow of music was gorgeous. You led us, folks, from the announcement of the birth of the Messiah by the angels to the shepherds. You took us to Bethlehem in the manger where the Messiah was going to be born. You called us to the silent wonder as we stand in awe, transfixed by God's glorious love. You called us to rejoice. And then you called all the faithful to turn to this Messiah and to bow the knees of our hearts in adoration and praise. But let's not be mistaken. This isn't the first time 
that God offered peace to the world? These texts exist because of Israel's rebellion. That's the whole point of Isaiah 40, that she rebelled against God's offer of of peace and comfort. Ah, the salvation that we talk about today is her restoration. It's our Gentile participation in Israel's redemption, says the Apostle Paul. That's why we can't boast about it. And it's Israel's redemption that we get to embrace. But you might ask me, when did he offer this? When was this peace and comfort offered? Well, in the Exodus, of course. When he rescued Israel out of the bondage of the Egyptians. They were dead, dead, dead. And he made them alive. That was hope. Then he led them through the wilderness to his own mountain. My mountain, the mountain. And he graciously appeared to them there and gave, him the, gave them the Torah at Mount Sinai. Good news to a people who wants to know what God's will is. And then a promise of a land, a place, our own, where we could be God's people. By the way, a land flowing with milk and honey. Israel, think about it, Israel, enjoying the peace and comfort of God as his obedient people were to be a sign and a witness to a broken world that had no peace. A witness to the world that Yahweh lives, embodied in their life together. Not some sentimental expression but a people shaped by God's will and his love as a sign to the world of good news. In a broken world, there is hope. Pharaoh's reality is not the last word. Yahweh is mighty. He is good. And he wills that all peoples on the face of the earth worship him and him alone and enjoy his peace. And comfort. Yet you most likely know the story from your own experiences in uh, reading the text in church and worship, but also maybe Christian tradition, those kinds of classes. We know very well that Israel rebelled. She did not share that good news. And Jonah, of course, is a classic parable about uh, how Israel failed to do that, and, but should have done that. And yet God punished. In the midst, however, of Israel's rebellion, God promises hope and restoration to those who remained faithful. That God would begin again with a faithful remnant. And we see that teased out in the early chapters of Luke. And I want to talk about that in reference to Elizabeth and uh, Zechariah. The manifestation of God's work to restore a people to be good news to the world. But by what means will God bring about this peace? How will God do this wondrous thing? And what kind of people must we become to enjoy and participate in this peace? I would like to offer a brief answer to these questions in two movements, if you will. 
The first, through reflection on the prophetic song of Zechariah. And second, through reflection on a much more recent song, penned by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. That beautiful and tender lament in that song. But let's turn first to Zechariah. As Luke weaves together in this beautiful, creative way, these strands of the story, we see Zechariah move in and out of the messianic narrative. He's forefronted, and he takes sort of a back seat, and he comes to the forefront again in these movements. And we get our first glimpse of him in the opening scene, these beautiful, luscious words after Luke's uh, introduction there. As Zechariah appears in the days of King Herod, he's identified as a priest, and his wife is a descendant of Aaron, no less. That's that's quite a uh, genealogy there. It's important to know that they are the paradigmatic, ideal representatives of the remnant. Those righteous, faithful few living according to the commandments of Yahweh and waiting for the anticipation, in anticipation, for the coming of the Messiah. So one day while serving in the temple, an angel of the Lord appears to Zechariah and reveals that his wife, Elizabeth, would bear him a son. And that son would be the Elijah figure who would herald the coming of the Messianic one. John, old in years, could hardly believe such news. And the angel made him unable to speak because of his lack of faith. Zechariah emerges again out of the narrative after Elizabeth gives birth. And everyone begins to ask, what is this new baby's name? Elizabeth, of course, claimed that it would be John. But Zechariah had to be consulted and unable to speak. He grabs an iPad. Actually, in the Bible it says a tablet, so it must be, um, uh, what's the tablet operating system? Yes, exactly. He grabs a tablet, right, and a scribe, and he carves out the name John on that tablet. And immediately Zechariah's mouth is opened, and he bursts forth in song and praise. And filled with the Holy Spirit, Zechariah sings his prophetic song. God is to be blessed. He has saved Israel. He's raised up a mighty Savior in the house of David. Just as God spoke through the ancient prophets, his mercy is real. His oath to Abraham is kept. Israel will be saved from the hand of her enemies. Quote, to serve Yahweh without fear in holiness and righteousness forever, unquote. What kinds of people must we become to participate in God's peace? And this John will be heralded this Messiah, who will, quote, prepare the way of the Lord and will give salvation to his people. God will give salvation, the forgiveness of sins. God's own tender mercy, Zechariah sings, 
will break in upon Israel, and she shall receive light. And those who sit in the darkness of death will experience that. And God will, Zechariah says, guide our feet into the way of peace. No sentimentality here. No divorce, no separation from feeling and action. Sentiment, of course. Deep and utter pathos in this first chapter of Luke. But they are never separated. Feeling and action kiss. The second way I want to get at this question is through a reflection on the song of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow he penned in 1864. And the song really has become something of a lament for me, uh, something of a traditional lament during the Christmas season. Um, People sometimes are surprised when I share this but often during the Christmas season, in a world of materialism and consumerism and selfishness and greed, I get depressed. And I, this song by Longfellow has helped me. As I've walked through and journeyed with him, I think, in his own struggle uh, to see where peace is. And he writes this. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. I thank God for that poem and that song. It's given me courage and encouragement. But I have to admit I also feel a bit abandoned at the very end of that song. Where is this peace? Who's experiencing this peace? What does it look like? It seems as if the peace that Longfellow imagines stands aloof from the real world, from my concrete life, immersed in brokenness. And I'm not the only one who recognized that. Another writer, I don't know much about him, maybe you, you do. Harlan Sorrell pens three more stanzas to complete this song. And he writes this, When we repent and turn from sin, the Prince of Peace enters in, and grace imparts within their hearts 
his peace on earth, goodwill to men. O souls amid earth's busy strife, the word of God is light and life. O hear his voice, make him your choice. Hail, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then, happy singing on your way, your world will change from night to day. Your heart will feel the message real of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Sorrel, I think, deeply immersed in evangelicalism, imagines peace to be the result of conversion experience, a personal, private, religious moment of conversion. Yet, in my estimation, sorrow leaves us hanging too. Here are my questions to him and for you as we draw this homily to a close. Where is the community that tells this story? Where is the people that engages in the virtues and practices of such a life as this? Where is the community in which such a life can be embodied and lived out? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Where are the relationships created to sustain such a way of life? I want to suggest to you this Advent season that we are that community. Or rather, we must become that community in which the virtues and practices of peace, joy, and comfort are possible. And only then will the world know that peace. Let's stand together, please. And now, thank you for your patience. Thank you for hearing what I believe that God has laid on my heart for us as a people. Now receive the benediction and go from this place with hope that God will give you that peace as you live into the promise of the kingdom. Now may the God who is the only source of all peace work in you the body of Christ to bring comfort and goodwill as you present your own bodies to him as living sacrifices of praise, finding the rhythms of the kingdom of God through the virtues and the practices of the community of faith. Let it be so in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great day, folks.